Hello and welcome to That Tech Pod, where we discuss all things e-discovery, cybersecurity, data privacy, and tech innovation. I'm Laura Milstein, and I know a little bit about, you know, I don't know, tech, just a little bit. And I'm Gabby Schulte, and I know everything there is to know about technology and everything you just said, Laura. But to prove her wrong, for all those (laughs) listeners out there, I've brought on some heavy hitters to the show that are going to really make Gabby have to work for that statement that she just made. So, Gabby, why don't you tell everyone who do we have on the show today? Oh, my gosh. Pressure is on. So today we have Rebecca Finley. She is the CEO at Partnership on AI, overseeing the organization's mission and strategy. In this role, Rebecca ensures that the PAI team and their global community of partners work together so that developments in AI advance positive outcomes for people and society. And Laura, you know what? I have, we have another guest on today, which we don't normally do, but today we have two. Two of them, two of them. So (laughs) our other guest is Todd Marlin. He is principal in Ernst & Young's uh, forensic and integrity services practice and is the global forensic technology and innovation leader. So Rebecca, Todd, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. So we normally start out with just kind of asking a little bit of a general question just to get people kind of in the flow of things. So I really am curious, how did you both get started or kind of um, what is your journey into this field that you're in? You know, you both have some uh, very interesting background. So Rebecca, why don't you just tell us a little bit about how you got um, involved in, in AI and specifically PAI? Happy to do so. And thanks so much for having me with you today. And Todd, great to to do this together with you. Um, I mean, for me, it is all about impact and how we can build a global community of partners across sectors focused on this very complex and challenging area to have impact in society and for the benefit of people. I know that we all probably feel like today the world is more divided than ever. Uh, I happen to believe we have to search out those spaces where we can speak across perspectives, disciplines, borders, and organizations, if we're going to come close to meeting many, many of the global challenges uh, that we're presented with. And as the CEO of the Partnership on AI, that's what I get to do. I spend my days trying to introduce people to other individuals who believe in the same principles around responsible AI development, but likely don't already know each other. And sometimes that can be uncomfortable, uh, but I think it is profoundly important. I was reminded of this recently. We just did a virtual convening on AI and healthcare. Uh, The AI world is large and diverse. The healthcare world is large and diverse. And so to bring together experts who had not met each other uh, to really focus on questions of bias, access, accountability in AI applied in healthcare settings was just really powerful, both in terms of the insights, but also the connections that that fosters. And so this is really fundamental to the work that we do at the Partnership on AI. We have about 100 
partners in 14 countries worldwide. We're focused on creating AI that centers people first, prevents harm to the least powerful, and unlocks the innovation and potential for AI that we know will drive benefits for society. I came to this because of an experience that I had uh, in the early 2000s with the father of COVID, SARS. I'm based in Toronto. And as you may know, (laughs) SARS was the epicenter in North America for uh, the disease. And I was very fortunate to be part of a community that came together to focus on how we were going to promote the development and strength and resilience of the broader Toronto region amidst the catastrophe that was SARS. And I saw people come together that probably disagreed about absolutely everything else, but agreed that something that needed to be done uh, and worked together to advance and support the broader Toronto region. And it was out of that experience that I really came to understand the power of multi-stakeholder convening, uh, of setting agendas together and the long tail and impact that they can have. So I came from that experience and then was most recently at the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, where we've been funding artificial intelligence research since the early 80s. And in uh, the late uh, 2017, we were awarded by the Government of Canada leadership of the Pan-Canadian AI strategy. And there was a portion of that strategy that I led focused specifically on AI in society, really trying to build communities of social scientists and lawyers and ethicists meeting together and community organizations meeting together with all of the machine learning uh, researchers and computer scientists who were really advancing this work at CIFAR. So my passion was ignited through that work. And I joined PA late last year uh, in this role to really drive impact on a global scale. No, that's so that's so interesting. I also I always love hearing people. This is why we ask it because I love hearing people's journeys into how how they got to do what they're doing because I you know it's so. Mm-hmm oftentimes it's so weaving and I feel like there's a lot of things that you would never really think about. But, you know, like you said, working um, with the SARS outbreak, I can see now there's pro- there's a lot of sort of threads that go into that. So that's that's really cool. Um, so it's, Todd, it was I, I just have to say, Rebecca, like <laughs> Todd has a lot to step up right now because a, as a you lot were of talking, pressure, Todd. I was like, oh, no, she's good. She's good. So Todd, go. Step up. (laughs) Well, certainly an impressive act to follow. Um, And so, you know, greatly appreciate the share company with all of you. Uh, I took a a vastly different path, although uh, hopefully somewhat interesting. Um, So I have a multidisciplinary background and I didn't start out that way. So computers and data have always been my passion. I'm one of those geeks that learned how to program um, basic when they were in kindergarten back in the days of the Commodore 64 and the early days of, you know, computers. Um, So, you know, my, my brain thinks like a computer, you know, I, I problem solve. It's sort of like um, a natural thing for me. Um, But, you know, as I, you know, evolved and went to college, I decided that, look, I wanted to be that bridge between technical folks as well as business folks. So I pursued an accounting degree. Uh, and practice as an accountant for a, a year, 
and I, exactly a year to the day. So that if I ever wanted to be a CPA, I could pursue that. But that wasn't my passion. I didn't really enjoy um, performing inventories or you know things of that nature. And it was really before it was a digital audit. So you know at that time. You know, I had this technical expertise, which was practical and hands-on. I held many technical jobs through college um, and had the opportunity to either go work for a very large multinational corporate, helping to build database systems so they could uh, integrate all of their divisions, or going to work for one of the big four, not the currently the one that I'm a part of, a different one, um, pre-Sarbanes-Oxley, in helping with disputes and investigations, but from a data perspective. So... For the last 25 years, I've worked on um, issues for companies that are on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or should be. So whether they're being invested, investigated by the government, whether they're being sued, whether they've been hacked, whether it's just you know an internal review and there's significant issues. And I've been the person that helps to figure out and unpack what's the data that's relevant what were the business processes? How did it all fit together? How did that match what people expected to be to occur? Over that journey of working on the world's biggest crisis, crises in business, I went and I sought additional education. So I have two different master's degrees. I have a master's degree in cybersecurity and a master's degree uh, in artificial intelligence. And you know, essentially, um, you know, there, there's an overlap here because I think of the world today uh, as a triangle, if you will. So, you, you know, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, and privacy. These, these are the tenants that I think are, are the, the, the world <laughs> needs to grapple with, right? And it used to be, you know, if I, if I think, you know, even five years back, if I reflect in the world that I practice in terms of legal and compliance, great focus on the data all about the data. Where did it come from? How was it created? How was it used? What were the outcomes? And you know, how did it relate to the particular business practices, et cetera? Well, now we're in this crazy world where you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence are this other whole ecosystem that's interrelated with data. That, and it has all these different challenges that, frankly, I'm glad are getting a lot of attention through podcasts like this and through organizations, um, you know, certainly, you know, like PAI. Um, but there, there's a big gap here, right? Because these are highly, highly technical, complex challenges that are not well understood and can't easily be, easily be well understood by business professionals, let alone lawyers and compliance professionals. So you have this gap where it's, you have these highly technical people doing stuff that business folks can't get direct visibility into. And over my career, when you have those conditions, bad problems occur, bad situations occur, bad consequences, whether they're on purpose or not, because not everybody's informed. So I guess you can hear, it's a big passion of mine that you know I've, I've enjoyed growing up and investigating and looking into things. And I, and I pursued these other spheres of knowledge because I didn't only want to be able to talk about the buzzwords. I wanted to be able to get very deep technically and understand the process of how these things are created, create them myself, then to bring that investigative lens and mindset that I've had for the last 25 years to help all the different stakeholders understand what's going on. 
Yeah, no, and I that's why we were so excited to bring the two of you together because we see a lot of overlap. So Rebecca, would love to get your reaction to something, to some of what Todd was saying at the end there, you know, especially because at PAI, you know, you say you focus on positive outcomes with AI and artificial intelligence. So yeah, I would love to to, to hear your reaction to that. Absolutely. And I, I think the, the point, Todd, that you're making about the disconnect between the technology and the social context within it, which it is being deployed is core to thinking through what does it mean to advance positive outcomes. And that is so much of the center of the work that we're doing at PAI, as well as we think about how do we translate what we know we should be doing um, into actual practice, both within companies, within the corporate sector, but also within governments who themselves hold a lot of data um, and are deploying systems and services, and also with regard to better public understanding so the public can be better advocates for their own right as well. And one of the challenges that I think we have as a community is to really fight back this general impression that artificial intelligence, because it is seen to be a technology that is intelligent, is that it is somehow neutral. When we all know that all technology is the product of human choices, human behaviors. It is it is all wrapped up in our human structures and systems and understanding better what we would think of as sort of the socio-technical questions about how we advance responsible uh, AI uh, is core to the work we do. Um, and I, uh, I'm, I'm, I think that those questions can't be answered unless we're bringing those communities together. And this comes to the question of bias and the concern that if technology is not neutral, which it isn't, then what are the implications for both the biased social structures and systems we operate in as well, and their implications for bias in both the data that uh, uh, we are using to train our machine learning and AI systems, as well as the algorithms that are being deployed. Um, and then finally, the choices um, within which we as humans are making biases about how we will deploy them. And one of the areas that I'm sure you're focusing on, Todd, that, that we are as well, is trying to understand within companies, how do you invest in the first instance in thinking about deploying AI responsibly uh, across uh, your workforce and across your uh, products and services as well. And one of the ways that I uh, that we turn to is around documentation. So how can we use all of the really early great work that was done by many researchers in the field around uh, model cards and data sheets and data nutrition projects to really try to make transparent both within companies and then also to customers and clients what are the um, what is happening inside the black box as much as possible? So what's happening in terms of the data that is driving the the algorithms and also the algorithms themselves? Um, you know, I think of there's always a great example, which is that uh, 2014 example out of Amazon uh, and their intent to build and deploy a, um, a a recruitment screening tool that they could use to really drive top talent and system error is a great book that talks about this in some detail. Uh, and 
you know, so they trained an algorithm and a model based on all of the um, resumes that they had about what it meant to have top talent at Amazon moving forward. And no matter what they did as they evolved and worked with that algorithm, could they stop that algorithm from discriminating against women? Uh, whether they took out the names, uh, whether they tried to take out some of the really ex expressly uh, women-oriented content, uh, the data that that system was trained upon was uh, biased because the vast majority of individuals were male. Uh, and as a result, the algorithm consistently um, did not or, or, or underperformed when it came to recommending women into those roles. So that's one example of the way in which algorithms can be built um, and really um, can create almost uh, untractable uh, issues with regard to whether or not they're able to be resolved moving forward. Yeah. Oh, Todd, yeah, go ahead. I see you're ready to go. <laughs> no, absolutely. All, all great points. But I do want to amplify, you know, something that, you know, a few things that Rebecca said and maybe take it a step further, which is algorithms don't program themselves. They are programmed by humans and humans are fallible and humans have direct and indirect and subconscious views that affect what they do. And so let's, you know, take that a step further. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier, Laura, the world of e-discovery. I'm going to draw a relationship here. I'm going to get the shakes when I say it, but everybody knows what the EDRM is in e-discovery, which is the electronic discovery reference model. Don't say it again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But in any event, it's a model that says, here are the steps that you take to perform e-discovery. Well, when you're building algorithms, it really isn't much different. There are steps just like in that reference model. Starts with what problem are you trying to solve? Then which data are you going to use? Then you evaluate that data and you try to understand it. What are the distributions in it? What are the anomalies in it? You know, what's represented? Then you try to look at that, look at that data and say, okay, which are the variables that I'm going to want to use to build my model? And you select those variables. And then you take a data set and you, you, you break it up that has known outcomes and you break it up into two different pieces. The, the, the part that you're going to use to train the model, which is called the training data, and the part of the data which is going to be used to test the outcomes of that, right? So this, this is all about model building. And then at the end of that, you have results for what the, you know, I'm kind of simplifying it. There's lots of variations to this, but in a simple way, this is kind of how it goes. And then somebody evaluates those results and they, or groups of people evaluate those results, depending on the con context or construct, but often an individual evaluates those results and they say, well, okay, is this good to go? And then they deploy, right? Now, if you, what could go wrong with that process? Right at every step in the process, another thing that Rebecca said I'm going to want to amplify is choices and decisions are made that all have consequences. And they're, you know, not, not just the data that's selected, what's in there, what's not. You know, Rebecca spoke about, you know, societal drivers and, you know, outcomes, and that's, that's very important. But is somebody looking at the data set and saying, well, does this represent the world that I want the model to be based on? Does this have this much of a, these types of situation? Like, how are you covering low frequency examples to make sure, for example, 
that they're getting the proper attention. So there's, there are choices there. Some of them are sim- simple, like picking the data, but not so simple because it has consequences. Some of them are, well, I'm going to choose this algorithm, right? And if you choose the wrong algorithm, doing um, the types of explanatory, let's call them diagnostics, so it's not black box, are not possible because they're black box by nature. So there are choices that are every step of the way that affect the outcomes and the decisions or recommendations or predictions that the machine is making, which frankly are all chosen by an individual. And so where does that, where does that leave you? I think there's a, there, there's a bunch of key points today, at least from the world that I see, because of the pervasiveness of the internet and the rise of technology, you have all different sorts of individuals with varying levels of training actually trying to do this. Downloading code, not understanding it, or worse, you have platforms which are drag and drop. Drag and drop. You can create, you know, like with wizards, you can create models and algorithms. So there's lots of mechanisms. So there's the people aspect. So there's there are technical controls, which Re- Rebecca spoke about, but then there's also the people aspect. Who at the organization should be doing this? And then how is that stuff quality yeah. control? And then how is that stuff regularly tested? Because this that this needs to be regularly revisited because conditions change. And so, you know, one of the ways that, you know, beyond the documentation, which I absolutely agree is critical to provide transparency is, you know, depending on the criticality or the risk associated with the particular algorithms could be, you know, well, if this, if it gets it wrong, the plane goes down, well, then maybe that's something that needs to be tested every day, right? As opposed to doesn't have a life and death outcome, maybe you don't need to test that often, but testing and evaluation is required. So you can use things like generating synthetic data and feeding it data and measuring what's actually happening. So that there's there's a lot, lot to do here. And I'll just say, say lastly as well, you know, we're talking about bias that could be introduced, whether it's through the government or, you know, through companies that are trying to create algorithms for, you know, various purposes, right? But let's not forget the world we live in, which is there's a lot of bad actors out there, right? And so, you know, the other side of this is there are cyber risks associated with all of this. And so using, you know, open source code, um, you know, you could be, you can have poison data sets that can introduce bias from bad actors who are trying to wreak havoc. So there's a whole, there's a whole other dimension here as well, where, where you have bad actors that might be wanting to introduce harm or chaos into the system as well. And I really believe that that's going to be a, a bigger problem as we move forward in the future as well, which again, encourages, you know, governments and, and companies to take a look how they're controlling this, this whole ecosystem of building. Yeah. So you guys are making some really valid points and I want to throw a curveball to both of you. Either one of you can jump on this, but what about the consumer side? So, so this is going to make me sound awful and I apologize to all the listeners. This is the version where if sensitivity don't listen, but 
I feel personally that when you're talking about advertising discrimination through AI, sometimes I appreciate it. And that is not a favorable thing. And I don't think it's great for everyone, but here's why. You're scrolling on Instagram and you're looking around and all of a sudden you're looking to buy shoes and there's tons of shoes. And I'm like, oh, great shoes. I like that they know I like shoes and are targeting me because it's there. Do I always want it? No, but do I see benefits and and negatives to it? And then you think of the ethics of super specific ad segmentations and you have to question those things. But as a consumer, I want to know what are my actual benefits to personalize ads. So obviously tech is going to argue that people like them more, right? Tech is saying people like me, we like them, we want to get the ads. But at what trade-off? Like if people are aware of the trade-offs, would they actually pick? So I like uh, shoes. I want to get all these shoes things that are coming in. Ad tech is going to say, everyone likes shoes. Here's shoes. Here's more shoes. But let's say Congress then is like, hey, please don't, you know, they're going to say, please don't stop sending them ads on shoes. We want to do shoes. Great. But what if the shoes that in order to see them, I then have to give my social security number in exchange? I think people would then pass on seeing the shoe ads. So I'm probably not stating this in the most elegant way, but it seems kind of reasonable to me for Congress or another agency to require some sort of transparency and potentially set limitations around age or sensitive data and protect classes to avoid discrimination. So I think there's a way to be, and I discriminated is the wrong word, but discriminated against in a positive way where you're getting ads that maybe you kind of want or should be maybe targeted without it being have to. And I think that Todd, you talked a little bit about this of the people that, you know, bias is a learned thing in tech. It's not that the tech is just like, oh, we feel this and who is doing that, but what are the real solutions? What are the challenges that are making these things happen and how can people like me as a consumer that's not understanding that how this algorithm i'm just like why well, i said shoes and my phone heard me how can we be more knowledgeable and what can we do that's for either one of you or both of you fight over it rebecca why don't you go first and then uh, todd you can jump in yeah i think i think what i would come back to when thinking about your question would be what todd introduced around the level of risk um, in terms of the need for varying degrees of safety with regard to how that algorithm is being deployed. There's one thing in terms of Netflix recommending movies to me that I'm not particularly interested in. Um, and there's another thing when a particular algorithm is being deployed in the criminal justice system, for example. Um, and what we're seeing with regard to recent uh, regulation is that in the EU, for example, they've introduced a new AI Act, which attempts to approach regulation based on this question of risk. So very much very different obligatory responses and requirements from a transparency and protection and disclosure perspective with regard to both consumers uh, and regulators, depending upon 
whether it's a very high risk uh, application in which the algorithm is being deployed, or uh, in some cases within the EU AI Act, no regulatory requirements because it is so low risk in terms of the potential for discrimination um, or for other harms. Uh, with regard to, for example, surveillance or discriminatory practices, exactly as you indicated, or privacy protection. Um, And I think that's a very useful way to start to approach some of these questions and to help uh, both consumers to understand what rights they should be demanding with regard to protection and interacting with these systems, but also in terms of creating some rules of the road with regard to how companies are deploying AI systems across different applications. Um, In fact, in the US, of course, we have NIST, um, the National Institute for Standards and Technology that has just released their risk framework that also begins to identify ways in which regulators can. And of course, we're seeing things such as the Algorithmic Transparency and Accountability Act, which is being debated in in Washington as well. And we're seeing some states start to take action with regard to privacy protection and otherwise. So I do think there's a piece of this conversation that relates to what is the role of policymakers in helping to protect consumers and citizens um, in, in the way in which it's deployed and also to create some smart regulatory um, environments through which uh, companies can begin to innovate in a responsible way. I, I would just, I agree with all of that. And I would, you know, I, I think that getting regulation in place will be an important catalyst to facilitating the, the right types of behaviors. And, I mean, and you, you've seen it the, with the forerunner to this with privacy starting in the EU uh, and then, then spreading like wildfire across the United States now where we have state regulated privacy. And, you know, you see, we see that coming like a train down the tracks with AI right now. Of course, the, the EU is mentioned, but as well, from a U.S. perspective, you have the FTC, right? That is, you know, looking at, you know, based on the current regulatory laws, you know, how they regulate AI. And, you know, whether it's from the FTC Act, whether it's the Fair Credit Reporting Act, whether it's the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, looking at these different contexts, which are all about not using sensitive variables, race, color, religion, national origin, gender, things of this nature, um, you know, in certain types of uh, business activities, right? Whether it's regarding, you know, loan origination, um, credit, um, all these sorts of um items. And it's interesting. They're actually starting to get very active. So in March, um, one of the first times ever, they held a company that one of the, the outcomes of one of their enforcement actions was they caused a company, which was, which was WW International with formerly Weight Watchers. Essentially, they made them delete their algorithm because it used data that they shouldn't as, as an enforcement tactic. Uh, and that's pretty notable. Actually, I think, because um, can you imagine for a second you were asking um, Laura about, you know, advertising? Can you imagine for a second if that was for some of big tech, if all of a sudden the FTC turned around and said, you got to delete your algorithm for ads targeting, right? Like, I'd be so mad. Right. That's like, I well, can see both. I'm like, no, but that, you know, it's, it's, no, that's but- I, it's such a fine line. And I'm like, I don't want anyone to feel bad. I don't want you to get these biased ads, but like, I worked hard on this tech. You know, it's like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, it, the, the way this all happens, by the way, how does this happen? Right. 
is there's a whole supply chain of how this data is collected, right? Which related to real-time bidding and all that, right? Which is, you know, when you're browsing websites, cookies are being collected and your personal information is being gathered and your friend's personal information is being gathered. And this is all everything about you. And these dossiers are being built across the internet, right? And there are these companies, including big tech and other small tech companies that essentially control this data and essentially bid out like an auction, the right to serve up those ads. And depending on what the ads are related to, it might not be appropriate that they're using certain variables to um, serve up those ads. And, you know, some of the, the large tech companies like Facebook actually and Google have, you know, run into issues with um, regulators. Like, for example, in 2019, uh, Facebook was uh, sued by the, uh, the HUD <laughs> uh, related to its, you know, advertising with housing. Um, you know, and reportedly they, they, they made changes according to press reports, but there, there's a number of examples like this. So whether it's, you know, algorithms for big tech that are either serving up ads to select groups or not, right? Because the problem is, is the bias may be that group, certain groups are not getting the ads that they should have the opportunity to receive, right? Um, so it's an, an exclusive, you know, or exclusive, you know, excluding groups uh, sort of activity. Um, so, you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of, you know, different angles to it. I think one thing that's interesting also as well, uh, which was raised by Rebecca, is you have sort of, sort of at least my, my opinion is you have this sort of race going on, right? You have all these voluntary groups, right? Like, so great development that NIST came out with a framework, although it's very general. It's super, super general. So it's not actionable in its current form, right? So you would have to take it and a company would have to figure out like how to implement it and what it actually means. And there's a lot of work to that. And the reason is, is because this is tough stuff, right? Um, and then you have voluntary groups, right? Which is, which is driven by, look, we want to create a better world to live in, which is important. But I think ultimately, if we're all being honest with ourselves, and I don't mean to be controversial, it comes back to what Rebecca said, which is the type of change will not happen unless it's a requirement, right? Unless companies and governments are required to have certain risk mitigation and processes in place, companies will make a risk judgment. And, 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 and the point is, is the bad press that I would get from something bad occurring, the cost of that, is that greater than the cost of performing the activities to mitigate this risk. And right now, you know, with some ex exceptions, whether it's the FTC, whether it's this coming act in the EU, or, or whether it's New York City in terms of the narrow way that they're, you know, evaluating hiring. But for that, it's what's driving this is that risk analysis and some folks on the greater good. So something has to change, something has to give here. And I, I kind of feel like, and I, and I hate to introduce this concept, and I... But just to give you my level of thinking on it is, you know, we had the subprime crisis for mortgage, which crippled, you know, the financial markets. If you think of the prevalence of AI and its usage across the world, are we not setting ourselves up for another global crisis around technology because we're governing, not governing this area well enough? I know it's a provocative thing to say, but... Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think 
Well, I liked the subprime mortgage thing. I, I haven't heard that one yet, but I like it. Um, I think there's a lot of things to that because, um, yeah, when you build and build upon things that could or seem at least seem that they could, you know, it could all come crashing down at any any moment. Um, it definitely does feel like we're we're headed towards some sort of you know it does feel like a little bit like a time bomb so rebecca what do you what do you think about that and i i just have a follow-up um you know we're talking about um you know reacting sort of to ai and and the bias that could come into uh certain algorithms um but how do we kind of flip that on its head and actually advertise diversity through AI. So I guess, Rebecca, first part, you know, reaction to Todd's um, analogy there, and then I can, I repeat my question, but yeah, just curious about what you guys think about that. I am concerned uh, about the speed with which AI is being deployed. I think the uh, Stanford AI Index reported that year over year last year, the private sector investment in AI R&D doubled year over year. So it's now up to nine, over 90 billion uh, worldwide. Um, so I worry about the speed. I worry about the scale. We know that larger and larger models are being deployed and um, the capacity for um, discrimination um, and uh, toxicity within those models is deeply concerning. And I think we have to absolutely be focused on that. And I um, I wish we could move away from first to market to first to fairness, you know, to really start to think carefully and cautiously about deploying algorithms and that part of that cost benefit or risk analysis uh that you were that you were speaking about as that companies are making really centers diversity first. And this comes to the second part of your question, which is, if we all agree, which it sounds like we do, that tech is a human endeavor, then we absolutely know that responsibility and innovation comes from a diversity of perspectives being around the table and engaged in the development process. And so that means thinking about how we make our workforces more diverse, more inclusive in terms of creating space for different perspectives and opinion, and also thinking very carefully about how we engage communities in the development of this technology. Um, and there is a lot of work uh, in the uh, responsible AI space around thinking through how do we do a much better job of ensuring that um, citizen groups are engaged in uh, the development process. That means we need to take time. That means we need to really be open to hearing those very different perspectives. It's much more of a community effort than it is an individual developer's decision, as, as Todd was mentioning. And so it um, I think there's a lot of work happening in this regard. I think it's incredibly important. We're seeing some really innovative approaches coming out of community groups um, who are very focused on tech equity and tech justice, who are demanding to be at the table in the development of these systems. Uh, and I, I do think that that is a... Um, you know, it, it may mean that the development process is slower, but I firmly believe the evidence will show that you're more, more cost effective, having a much 
better product um, that is much, um, much stronger in terms of building a community and relationship with your consumers and your citizens. So yes, I'm, I'm positive that, that that's moving forward, but it, it just needs to happen much more quickly. Um, and at the same time, the speed and scale is concerning. I, you know, I would just, you know, I add, and I agree with, you know, everything you just said, I, I would add another dimension, which is, you know, there's a little bit of a culture clash thing going on here too, which is developers or machine learning engineers, technical folks. And I am, I identify as a technical person, although I, I don't know. Uh, but any event, um, the point is that you kind of just want to do your thing. Right. You, you want to be in your room with your four monitors cranking out your stuff. You don't want to create documentation. You don't want to have to explain yourself to somebody. You don't want to have all these like belts and suspenders. Like there's a there's a pushback there, which to me, it's not it's not a natural proclivity of that community generally to want to be able to do those things. So for that change to occur, which I totally agree with, I feel it needs to become a top of boardroom agenda item, just like cybersecurity. And, and this is where I think it fits in. It's an ESG issue, right? How is ESG really you know, activated and, and, and diversity? Through data and models, right? And if we if if we're if that's the if that's a top of boardroom issue, then you know mitigating AI bias, whether it's in advertising or in other contexts, needs to needs to be a top of boardroom issue. It, it, that's how that's how I see it fits together. Awesome. Well, you guys have been excellent. So it, if there's anything else you want to share, now is your your moment. But uh, we just really want to thank you both for for being on the show. Rebecca, incredible. Todd, incredible. Gabby, I hate so to far. say this to you. <laughs> I I mean, I just think that they may have out-teched you a little I bit. So too. I think but, I but it was close, Gabby. You, you, you know it was close. <laughs> <laughs> That is fine. But yes, Rebecca Todd, thank you so much for being here. That was awesome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks very much. We just talked to Rebecca Finley and Todd Marlin. Uh, Tell me your tech takeaways. Well, first of all, Todd Marlin, Rebecca Finley. Just saying there's some similarities there. Oh, my Lord. Just kind of put that together. Nice Um, connection. With this episode, I was just in awe listening. I think both of us were kind of like, please, we don't even, we're the guests today here to learn. They were both so knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. It They gave so many good points and made you really think about everything. I'm not even going to try to give any tech takeaways here because I'm still processing. I know, it's a lot <laughs> to process. I, I liked the dynamic of kind of the half glass full, half glass empty. And it's not anything uh, bad about either of them. I think it's positive, but you know, Rebecca definitely had a little bit more of um, uh, sort of uh, 
positive hopefulness for the future of what we were talking about, about with AI. And then Todd definitely brought a lot of skepticism and a lot of alarm, which I think is really good. I think was very needed. I think both of those dynamics were really, really good. And, um, brought a lot to the conversation um and i think todd made like really really good analogies there so i'm still thinking about the the financial crisis one um so yeah we really encourage everyone to um you know check both rebecca and todd out and Laura, if people want to find us, where should if they go? If people want to find us, they should swing on over to our website, www.thattechpod.com. Don't forget, we have merchandise right now. Uh, it Again, to the person about the basketball not happening at this time, but we have shirts, we have sweatshirts, we have all the swag, so you can dress for success. And it's, you know, summer time to wear your yoga pants. If you wear yoga pants in the summer, step up, we have those. If you're wondering, why is this such an irrelevant thing? Ask me. In order to ask us any other questions, reach out to us at contact at thattechpod.com. You can also check us out on LinkedIn slash thattechpod, or teach us how to Twitter or how to Instagram, or do you call it Insta? Do you call it the gram? Do you tweet? I don't know, know, but we have these days. Yeah, that tech bot. <laughs> and if you just want a nice, free, uh, hassle-free way of helping out the pod, go to uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to this podcast. Write us a five-star uh, rating and review. It helps people find the show, and we'd love you forever. For sure. I mean, if you write a review, even if it's negative, I- I'm excited. You're going about in it. my will. Woo, you're not going in mine. But I will think about you for at least 30 minutes. So thank you and uh yeah, we'll we'll see you next week. Bye.